As we come to scripture again this afternoon after hearing a lot from God's word today and in our conversations and the Lord's Supper and seeing that my theme for this afternoon is Christ our Lord from Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, We might be tempted to ask, haven't we heard enough about Christ already in one day? And as we come to it, I am reminded of uh, what Sinclair Ferguson said uh, to someone who asked him, after he had written a book on grace, someone asked him, why another book on grace? There's so many on on that subject. And uh, that man responded, we need to fill the world with books on grace. And in the same spirit, I would say, we we can't say enough about Christ. Uh, He is an inexhaustible theme. And so I call our attention to Isaiah 42 this afternoon. Please stand there with me. This is one of those servant songs in Isaiah. The passage continues up to verse 9. But for this afternoon, I'll just... Uh, point us to just the first section of the passage. And I'll read uh, Isaiah 42 from verse 1 to 4. And before I do so, I want to remind you where this is in Isaiah. So as we read, uh, we remember where, where it falls in. Remember that Isaiah is a servant of the Lord um, 700 years before, before Christ comes and is prophesying there to the people of Israel and Judah. And it is a time of uh, great turmoil politically for Israel and Judah. There they are, they're in the Middle East, Egypt to the south. You have the Assyrian Empire on their northern side to the east. And they're caught in between this. And so politically, it's a difficult time. But Isaiah, like all the prophets, is speaking about themes that are relevant to this day and timeless really is talking about sin and righteousness and judgment and salvation now in that in that context and in that time with uh, God's old covenant people there we see that a lot of what their sin would lead to was this chastisement from these nations and and so so the political turmoil yes it's it's difficult and it's and yet, underneath all of that, the cause of that is, is sin. And so, in that, in that way, it becomes very relevant. And so, but also, in terms of salvation, there is, you'll find in the Old Testament, in the prophets, there is, salvation has the, the spiritual aspect that we can relate to as well, but also the deliverance from the enemies. Uh, so at the end of Isaiah, so the first part of Isaiah, so say chapter 1 to 39, we have the looming threat of the, of the, of the Assyrians. And uh, Israel eventually falls under the, the Assyrian invasion in 722 BC. But then uh, Judah, the southern kingdom is spared. Remember at the, in the middle there of Isaiah, King Hezekiah, he trusts the Lord and he prays. And God preserves Jerusalem miraculously. He destroys the Assyrian army. 
But then, as, as that section of Isaiah comes to an end, you see that Babylonians, uh, Hezekiah receives this envoy of Babylonians, and already there you're seeing this, what, what will be coming in, in, in the future, that Judah itself, the southern kingdom, will fall under this other uh, power arising, the Babylonians. But then as Isaiah looks ahead to this, in the second half of Isaiah especially, there are these statements of comfort of how the Lord will, although there will be an exile of judgment, yes, yet that will not be the end. There's, there's going to be, there's going to be a, a deliverance, a return, even from the exile. But then, and this is where it's, it's, it, 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 it touches us, as you, as you read these sections in Isaiah, we see that what he's talking about, this return from exile, this deliverance, is more than just Israel uh, sent to Babylon and then coming back to the, to the promised land. There are things that are said that are so much bigger, so much greater in the purposes of God than, than merely the, the return of Israel to the land. And it's in this context that we see this deliverance, this salvation that will reach to the end of the earth. And then, particularly, this person who is identified severally as the servant who will be the agent, God's agent, in bringing about this this salvation. And so, Isaiah has these servant songs, and that's one of the ones that we're reading here in Isaiah 42. I'll just read the first four verses. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask again for your blessing upon the word. We read in the psalm that the testimony of the Lord is sure. And we're coming here, Father, to your testimony concerning your Son, the Messiah, whom you would send, as Isaiah saw it, and whom you have sent, as we see it. And Lord, we pray that you will enable all of us to see afresh the Lord Jesus Christ as you portray him in this passage. We ask that you will speak to us. We pray that you will show us the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, pray that you will bless this word to this church and that you would go on building up your people in their most holy faith. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is one of those servant songs in Isaiah, which is a way that uh, the prophet Isaiah identifies Messiah. And as we speak about Messiah, I'll ask you two questions, two related questions. What is, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Now there are 
different ways we can answer that question scripturally. It's someone who has come to see their sin and to believe in Christ. It's someone who has God as their father. It's a child of God. It's someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Right? All of these perspectives, aspects of who a Christian is. But wouldn't you agree that one of the answers, a fundamental one, is that a Christian is someone who has come to see, to believe that Jesus is the Christ and to receive Him as such. That Jesus is the Christ and to receive Him as such. But then that raises a second question. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? What does it mean that Jesus is a Christ? And that is, that, is, that is a question Scripture helps us to answer. The New Testament in very clear, blow, br- uh, just bright colors. But then we see it in the Old Testament. And without, without the Old Testament, we would not have uh, a good and a full picture of who Christ is. And a key element to answering that question is seeing... Just that that word Christ, as many of you know, comes to us from the Greek Christos, which is how they translated Messiah, the Hebrew word for the anointed one. So it's the anointed one. And so although our passage does not use the word Messiah, the idea is right there in verse 1 where we read, I have put my spirit upon him. So this is a passage about about Messiah. It tells us uh, some things about about Messiah. Now, I heard a testimony of a, of a Jewish man who came to faith in this Jesus Messiah. And he said he came to faith when he was 34 years old. He grew up in New York. Came to see that Jesus is Messiah. But he, he said something very interesting. He said that in the 34 years that he had lived in America, no one had ever pointed out to him that Christ means Messiah. Now, as a, as a Jewish man, he, he knew the word Messiah. That, that, that meant something to him. But the word Christ, he thought, that's that, that word for the Gentiles. That's, that's not for me as a, as a Jewish man. And uh, that has stuck with me. So we should be clear. Messiah, Christ. And this passage tells us some things about it. I want us to look at it from uh, under three headings. First of all, just the identity. Who is this, who is this person? The identity of the servant and then the mission or the task of the servant. So the servant's identity, his mission, and then uh, more briefly, uh, his manner. How, how, does he, how does he carry himself around about this, this servant, this Messiah, God's Christ? So the man, the mission, and his manner. First of all, look at verse 1 as we look at who this person is. Notice the word that he's introduced with. Behold. The passage begins, behold. Behold. Look. It's a call to attention, right? It's, 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 it's the Lord calling attention to this one. He's introducing this servant, this person. And he's saying, look. Pay attention to this one that I am about to tell you about. He's saying, look away from everything else and look here, listen about this person. 
In the previous chapter, the prophet Isaiah addresses this subject of idolatry, showing how God is a true God, that the idols are nothing. And in there as well, he uses this word. Look, for example, just if you just glance the chapter before, verse 24, Behold, you are nothing. He's speaking to the idols. Idols are nothing. Verse 29, and here he's speaking about idolaters, people who follow and devote themselves to things that are not the true God and give their total heart affection to them. He says, behold, they're a delusion. They're nothing. The idols are nothing. The idolaters become futile like their idols. And then it changes as we come to chapter 42. And then now, behold, look, here's someone worth paying attention to. Just a few weeks ago, I was in a, in a, in a public place and in front of me, there was a man, right, right in front of me, he, he, had, he had shaved all his head. He had a tattoo at the back of his head, a big one. It just said 1912 in big letters, 1912, big numbers. And I was looking, I was wondering, 1912, what, what happened in 1912? Why it's that important? What, what should I know about this? So I was curious and I, I asked him, why 19, what's, what's 1912? And he said, oh, that's, that's the year that my favorite football club was founded. Football club founded that year and so important to this man, sticks it in the back of his head. That's, that's devotion. But to what? A football club. He's from Bulgaria. The friends... Isn't that the reality of idolatry? That we take something that's not worth that affection, that, that devotion, and we, we, set it, we set our hearts on that. We have idols that are nothing. And here, here is someone. Here is a person who is worth looking at, who is worth paying attention to, who is worth branding ourselves, so to speak, with God's servant. Behold, let's, and that's what we're doing here. Looking at him. And who is it? Two things are said here. Uh, he is God's special servant. The first thing I want to point out about his identity, that he is God's special servant. And I say special because this word servant, as you know in Scripture, is applied to many, many, many different uh, people. Uh, you, you see God's worshippers. You see the angels uh, call God's servants. You see Israel. For example, in this same chapter, or previous chapter 41, verse 8, my servant Israel, uh, we looked at a passage in Numbers where we saw ser- uh, people serving God in different ways. And so this, I, this word servant is applied in all these different ways. And you know, a true Christian is, is a servant of God. The basic idea of it is just doing, doing the will of God, right? Serving God, but I say special servant because this one is unlike any any other. This servant that we're reading about here is unlike any anyone else. Because you see, one one commentator, uh, Colin Dillich, has they help to kind of show how Isaiah uh, brings out this this idea of servant. So as you're reading Isaiah and you see. Uh, who is called servant? He, they use um, kind of the picture of a pyramid. 
So you have a pyramid, picture a pyramid. You have Israel at the base of the pyramid. So broadly speaking, Israel called the servant of God. But then kind of in the middle of the pyramid, the faithful within Israel called the servant, the servant of God. But then at the very top of the pyramid, you have a special person who is to come from Isaiah's vantage point, its future, this servant who is uniquely the servant of Yahweh. You see, he has a special task, as we shall see, which no one else uh, can do. As Calvin puts it, he is called a servant because God the Father not only enjoined him to teach or to do some particular thing, but called him to a singular and incomparable work which has nothing in common with other works. What are, what, what are some, some things that are said about the servant in that opening verse? God the Father says this about him. He's my chosen, my elect. You see that in, in verse 1, my chosen one or my elect one. You see, Christ is the Father's chosen one in a special way. From all eternity, the Father has had his special eye and attention and delight, as we will see in a second thing here, in the Son. So if anyone else is chosen, it's in, it's in Christ. It's in this one. But Christ himself is the Father's chosen one, as we see in, in verse 1. But secondly, as we look at uh, this special servant, he is, look at what, what, what it says. The Father says, my soul delights in him. My chosen one in whom I delight in my soul delights in him. The Father has a special delight from all eternity, a love that we cannot comprehend. The Son and the Father. The Father delighting in the Son. And even when He brings Him into our world, when the Son is sent and comes as one of us in His humanity, man, and yet fully God, man, like us, yet without sin, when He comes like that, He is still the Father's delight. The voice from heaven, what does it cry? This is, this is my chosen one, my, my, my beloved, in whom is all my delight. You see, this, this servant, yes, he's about to be given a task, <clears throat> but he's not just like someone being sent on a task. You know, you can, you can choose someone to do a job for you, though you don't, you don't like them very much, right? You, you may be a good worker, and your boss appreciates your work, but maybe not, not your person, but, but, but not here. This servant is the one in whom the Father delights. But here, secondly, as we look at God's, at the identity of this person, he is also a fully equipped servant. So he's God's special servant. He is God's fully equipped servant. We see someone with, a, with an important job needs to be prepared, right? And given everything that he needs to accomplish that task, right? We want our surgeons well-trained. We want our soldiers well trained. Any, any, any job really. You want, you want them to be given and you want them to be supplied, to be made all that they should be, to be all that they should be to do the task 
that is set before them. So, is the Messiah who is coming to do this great task that we shall see, is he coming unequipped? No, he is fully qualified for the task in so many different ways, in his own person, as a divine son of God. But one thing that it says here is that the Father says, I have put my spirit upon him. I have put my spirit upon him. This is one of the things that's said about him. He is given, he is anointed, not as the priests and, and the kings in the Old Testament were with, with a symbol of the oil, but with a very reality that that oil symbolized the blessed Spirit of God. So that Christ is that one who has the Spirit without measure, as John chapter 3 tells us. Isaiah 11, go to Isaiah 11, which also speaks to us about the Christ. We read there in verse 1, this same thought of the Messiah being given the Spirit. Isaiah 11 verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots, and he shall bear, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Listen to verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is, this is our Savior. He is the Christ, meaning He is the anointed one whom the Father has put His Spirit upon. This morning we heard about the Trinitarian elements in Ephesians. And I believe the very, the very, the very word, the very title Christ is really Trinitarian when we understand it rightly. Because what's going on? It's the person of the Son whom the Father has anointed with the Spirit. So when we, when we say Christ, already we're just within, within the very title, Christ, we can get in through that into the person of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And, and isn't that what, part of what Christ came to do? Is to reveal God in, in the fullness of His person, even in His triune nature. So He is fully equipped in, in having the Spirit upon Him without measure. But also in verse, in verse 1, another element of His equipping that I skipped over is its, His being upheld. It says, the Father speaking about the servant, He says, whom I uphold. You see, Christ is upheld in a way that no, no other servant has because his task is unlike any other. None else can do the work that he was sent to do. And the Father here proclaims, I uphold him. That's my son. I uphold him for the task that I have sent him to do. Yes, Christ in his own divine nature, unconquerable. And yet, as man found in the likeness of man, there he is being upheld by the Father by, and being equipped with this full anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is our Savior. This is, this is our Christ. When, when he comes, 
these are some of the ways he will be identified. That he will be the one who has the spirit without measure. Before we move on to a second point about his mission, I want to ask you, is, is this how you think about Christ in these ways as the Father's anointed, as the Father's beloved? You see, this very thought about the Father delighting in Christ calls us as well to examine ourselves in this sense. It's a dangerous thing if you, if you are in opposition or in hatred or in rebellion or in despising that one whom the Father so delights in. Who, he says, my soul delights in him. And then if you can, can, cannot say my soul delights in Christ, instead it's I don't care about him. Who is he anyway? I, that's a dangerous place to be. First Peter chapter 2, remember how it says that, 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 that Christ, he is that, that, that stone chosen and precious in the sight of God, but yet rejected by men. You don't want to be on in that side, those who reject the one who is the Father's beloved. But then how about this, this idea of Christ being called servant? How, how, does, that, how does that sit with you. Isn't he Lord? Yes. Yes. This is our matchless Christ who is Lord and yet he has humbled himself to be a servant. He, he has come on a special task to do the Father's will in bringing salvation and doing this work of redemption. This is how, this is how we a lot of what we read in the Gospels, Christ is always, always, constantly speaking about His delight in doing the Father's will. That's my meat and drink, He says. We heard it this morning from John 17, uh, that, 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 that He has the authority to lay down His life and take it up again. And then He adds, this charge or this commandment I have received from my Father. So in Christ, we see this wonderful and strange mixture of authority and and servanthood, of authority and and, and humility. This is a servant like no other. He's the one who has come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, as one theologian, Hugh Martin says, he does not count it dishonor to be under imperative commandment to hear the father saying to him thou shalt you see he comes as a second Adam right as man he is coming to undo by his obedience what Adam our first father destroyed by his disobedience so we should we should think uh, about our Lord in this uh, title of servant as well but how about this thought about his equipping? How can we apply that to ourselves? What should that do to our hearts as we hear about him being fully equipped for the work of salvation? Well, I, I believe one thing it should do is to call out our full confidence of heart, our full trust in this one whom the Father has given this task of salvation. 
Here is one who can meet all of my soul's needs. What do I need for my soul? Forgiveness of sin? Transformation of life? Here is one. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved except this Jesus whom the Father has given to us to be our Savior and who there's, there's none else. Think of Pharaoh there in Egypt. There's a great famine. But he has appointed one, Joseph, to be the one to give bread and food to, to the people. Joseph is the, only, is the only one who can feed the souls of the famished ones. What if you decide, no, I, I don't want to go to Joseph. I'll go to Jonathan or some, other, or some Egyptian person. They, they're, not, they're not equipped. They don't have what, 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 what you need. And so Christ is the one that the Father has equipped and given to be the Savior of the world. To whom else shall we go? He has the words of eternal life. Let's, let's think secondly about his mission. So we've seen something about his identity, this servant's identity. Let's think about his mission, the servant's mission. If I was to ask you to finish this sentence, Jesus came into the world too. I, I heard whispers there of to save sinners. First uh, John 3 said he came to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, he came so that those who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Different, different ways that we could word the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but what does it say here? Look with me at the end of verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Or your version might have the word judgment. This, this word justice. And it's a key word in, this, in, this, in these verses that we're reading. This word justice, you see it at the end of verse 1. You see it at uh, end of verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth justice. You see it in verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. So three times in four verses we see uh, this word. And so the first thing I'll say and our second point uh, on his mission is, first of all, that it's a, it's a justice mission. That the servant, Messiah, is coming on a justice mission. And this word, justice, uh, it, it's, it's a very important word in, in Scripture. And uh, it occurs a lot of times in, in the Old Testament. It's an important word. And it has a range of meanings. And perhaps fuller than, than, than comes to mind when, when we immediately hear justice, the things that come to our minds. But, but this word is richer than, than uh, we generally take it. Uh, one one uh, commentator, John Oswald, says, uh, it is much more than mere legality. Rather, it has the idea of right order. Uh, this explains why it is often paralleled to a uh, Hebrew word, tzadka, which means uh, righteousness. But this, but simply, it has the idea of, of right, that which is right, that which is fitting. This means that 
justice has a much larger pool of connotations than we normally use the word. Uh, to be sure, a world where the innocent are punished, oppressors go free, is a world where justice is lacking. But, but, but the word uh, here in, in the Hebrew is much more than that. It, it, it includes the ideas of even right worship. It's a reality where, where God is seen for who He is, even as we heard uh, this morning. And He is seen and acknowledged as that. As long as that's not happening, that's, that's unjust. That's, that's injustice. Friends, do you realize that sin is a great injustice? Sin of itself is a great injustice. What do I mean? One of the uh, most common definitions of justice is giving that which is due. Giving to someone that which is due to them. Now, when we ask about our God, the, the infinite, glorious God that we heard about this morning, and we ask this question, what is, what is due to Him of obedience, of honor, of reverence, of love? That's, that's what's due to Him. That's what you and I are, are, are supposed to give to God. But then, what are we as sinners? None of that. The very opposite of that. We, we do the very opposite. It's, sin is an injustice. Sin is unjust at its, at, at its very core. You'll hear, you'll hear people in the world who are very concerned about justice from a human perspective, right? J- just from a human perspective, you know, treat one another right, don't do this. Do that. But you, you, you can even have very activists so, so concerned about social issues and, and all of that. And, and they will even say, you know, I don't, have to, I don't need to have God in the picture. To, but do you see that it's, it's injustice? It, it, trying to obey the second greatest commandment without the first, it's, it's, it's total, it's, it's sin. It's, it does not suffice. It's unjust. It's a disregard of the one who is worthy of the greatest regard. So, when Messiah comes, one of the things He's coming to do is, is to deal with this whole thing where God is not seen and acknowledged uh, for who He is. Uh, but this justice, of course, also has the, the human-to-human aspect. Often, uh, the word justice is, is paired with righteousness and even human-to-human dealings. You can read this in Isaiah 1, verse 17, where... The whole question of how you deal with the widows and, and the fatherless is spoken of in, in terms of justice. And, and justice then also has the idea of uh, settled accounts, the, the imbalances of sins and wrongs and undoings. And He is coming to settle and to put things to right. He is, and then in the fullest sense, to put things right in where God is is acknowledged and seen where, where things are what they're meant to be. This, this word justice, is, it really it takes us to, 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 to the new heavens and the new earth with the restoration of all things. But of course, it, believe, it begins individually. He, he, he comes to do this personally. And He comes to do it ultimately through His work on the cross. And, and we shall see some about that. So it's a justice mission. Uh, 
Secondly, it's a global mission. Uh, we'll be briefer on this. It's a global mission. I just point you to end of verse 42, for, verse 1, sorry, where it says he'll bring forth justice to who? Just to the Jews? No, to the nations. End of verse 4, the coastlands shall wait for his Lord. Uh, middle of verse 4, justice in the earth. It's a global thing that Jesus is coming to do. And I want to encourage you with this, that as a Christian, friend, you are part of a, a great, redeeming, saving mission work of God. This great task of Messiah that, that, that's not small, it's big. It's big, it's global. Isaiah 49, uh, we read there, uh, the Father again speaking to Messiah and saying, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And here we are. If you're a believer, it has reached you. You're a beneficiary of the justice mission of Christ. That he has come to do this in your life to set things right, both by what he did on the cross in putting right the account, in putting away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and standing in our place, that the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, and then in also fixing your life and putting things to right. He is on a justice mission in your life, believer. So it's a justice mission, it's a global mission, but it's a difficult mission, a difficult Mission. Thirdly, here on his mission, and that's, that's a big understatement when we consider the sufferings of our Savior. But look at verse, verse 4. It says there, He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. The kinds of things that make us grow faint or discouraged are usually difficult, hard things. And the task of Messiah is going to be, and was, a difficult one. Isaiah 53, the other servant song of the several servant songs, opens up his sufferings more fully. But already we, we see it here, a hint of his sufferings. So when Christ comes, what was his Life like he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Before his death on the cross, he can say, Now is my soul troubled within me. And yet shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this hour I have come. He can say, Father, is it possible that, 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 that this cup can pass? Is there another way? Is there another way that justice shall be established upon the earth? Is there another way apart from me facing this ordeal of the wrath of God? No, there was no other way. He would be crushed. This seed would fall to the ground and die so that he may bear forth the fruit of justice and righteousness. And praise be to God, he went through not 
how does he how does he put it nevertheless and he submits to the will of the father willingly for the joy set before him which would include the establishment of justice and righteousness upon the earth he goes through with this difficult work even to the point of death on the cross so Jesus' death on the cross is the foundation of true justice. Justice flows to the earth from Calvary, where justice and mercy meet, where wrath is spent, where sinners can be forgiven. Here, he dies for sinners. And that, that, that's where, that's alone, there, the cross of Christ, where true justice the accounts settled, lives fixed, lives transformed, right order, God seen for who He is, and all the fruits of the death of Christ establishing justice in personal lives and eventually in the whole earth. That's a difficult mission we've seen. Fourthly, and finally under His mission here, it's a successful mission it's a successful it's a successful mission notice what it says that he will bring forth justice to the nations he will do it he's actually going to do it and then verse 4 again he will not grow faint or be discouraged till until he has established justice in the earth. You know, friends, it, it looked it looked like it would fail. There, Messiah is born. There in Bethlehem. And then Herod is going about seeking to kill the infants. And is he going to get him? No. It didn't fail then. And then as he grows up and we see him in his confrontations with the Jewish leaders, at one point the people want to throw him off a cliff. No, it did not fail. And then, fast forward to the, the last week before he dies, and there he's being betrayed, he's being mocked, he's being brought before wicked men to be judged, and then eventually nailed to a Roman cross, shamed. There, there is the one who is coming to establish justice on the earth, hanging, bleeding on a cross no wonder those disciples on the road to Emmaus speaking to him after he had risen from the dead they, they look at him and they, and they say dejectedly sadly discouraged they say we had hoped we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel we had hoped what do they think it had failed but no it had not failed and the evidence that it had not failed was standing right in front of them. He rose again from the dead. He rose again from the dead with mighty power and then ascended the right hand of the Father. And from there He's ruling and reigning. And He sends His Spirit applying His work of redemption. He's saving. He is settling accounts as, as His chosen ones are brought in, brought to faith in Him forgiven, 
all their sins, the debt, counsel, justice established, and they're being made progressively righteous in their sanctification. He is doing the work of establishing justice and righteousness. He is doing that work in you. Are there areas of your life where you see the, the injustice of sin? Well, there's hope here about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who will not faint, will not be discouraged until He finishes this work, including in you, until you stand as an oak of righteousness with the planting of the Lord. As Isaiah says in 61 verse 3, this, this should be, friends, as we apply this, this truth, first of all, I would say, should examine ourselves in, in terms of, has He begun that work in me? Has He begun that work of establishing justice in my life? If not, it should be for my desire, for yours. Has He, has He? We can say, Lord, do that in me. Bring, settle Fix my life. Settle the accounts between me and God. Deal with my sin. Forgive me. Hope in the atonement where justice secures our pardon because our sins have been paid for. But this also should be for our praise and admiration. You see, there's a lot of people on different missions, different tasks, doing different things. But oh, what a mission our Savior is on. What a mission. And what it is and its scope. It's a great Savior on a great mission. But it, it should also call us to join Him. Right? In this, in this mission, we mentioned at the beginning that the word servant is applied to God's people more generally. Right? And so... He does call us to join Him. When we come in, into Christ by faith in Him and grafted into Him, we're made sons, yes, praise God, but also servants. And a lot of the promises also that are made and the things that are said about Him, we can apply them to ourselves secondarily as Christians. Does God promise to uphold you, believer, in the work that He has given you? Yes. Within this same context, one of probably uh, many of us love those verses in Isaiah uh, 41, verse 10. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There applies to believers uh, more generally. How about the, the, the Spirit, the equipping of the Spirit? Don't we need the Holy Spirit as well in the tasks that God has given us? You here, here in, the, uh, in Meru, seeking to serve God and be a witness for Him in this community, uh, you need the help of the Spirit. Your elders do, you as members. We need the equipping of the Spirit in order to do His task and to be His, his instruments in bringing forth justice in all of its fullness, even in our community. Now, this, this one who is coming on this mission, this 
justice mission, this global mission, this difficult mission, this successful mission. How, how does he come? As we look thirdly and more briefly here on his manner. And I just say two things about, that are said to us about his manner here in terms of how he comes. And the first one points us to his, to his, to his humility. Look at, look at what it says in verse 2. That he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. I believe uh, this, this, this verse here points us to the element that Christ is not, was not self-aggrandizing. He, he, he wasn't self-advertising in the showy way of worldly rulers. In fact, when uh, Matthew cites this passage in Matthew chapter 12, this is the one element he is bringing out how Christ was not one to self-advertise in the way that worldly rulers do in, in a worldly way. Matthew 12, uh, it's a surprising use and quotation of this chapter in Isaiah, of Isaiah 42. Matthew 12, We see, we read in verse 15, uh, this, is, this is after uh, the Pharisees are, are conspiring against Christ. It says in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. And then it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. He's quoting our passage. And then verse 19, it says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. And I believe that that element is, is, is a key reason why Matthew brings up this passage, that, that Jesus was even ordering during his earthly life not to proclaim him in a way that the Jews would misunderstand his kingship. There he is. He, he's not showy and self-aggrandizing. In fact, he's saying, he's telling them, not yet. It's not, t- not your time not to make him known. So very unlike uh, worldly rulers, and there's an element of his uh, humility there, which we have other instances of it uh, in Scripture. But also, in terms of his manner, so humility, but also his compassion in verse 3, where we read that he, he will not break the bruised reed or the faintly burning wick. That's his compassion. He will not destroy the weak, whether spiritually or otherwise, coming to him. There's a gentleness about him in the way he deals with sinners. And this is a great reason for us to come to him constantly, right? Whether for the first time you're lost and you see... This Savior who we've been talking about, his, his humility, his gentleness should be one of the draws to him. Or as believers in all of our needs, knowing that he will not cast us out. He is approachable in this, in this way. Well, this is the servant of Yahweh, who himself is fully God and yet comes as a man 
doing the will of God and serving God and us. He says he laid down in service to us for our good. What, what a Savior. Wonder, he is worth looking at, right? Behold my servant. Well, may God grant each of us to believe the testimony that he has borne concerning his son to us in this passage today. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for Isaiah 42, for your word. We thank you how you show us Messiah even before he came, and we see how this confirms us, in, even in the truthfulness of your word, how our Lord Jesus Christ fully matches this description and fulfills it, spoken of him so long before. And Lord, we pray that you will give us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to, to entrust ourselves fully to him, to have a growing understanding of what it means that Jesus is our Christ, our prophet, our priest, our king, working in all of these ways to establish justice in our lives. And Lord Jesus, we pray, go on doing it in our lives, in our community. And we know, Lord, that you will come on that last day to bring about righteousness, a new heavens and a new earth, and to deal forever with sin and hell. And justice shall forever be established through your work, both of salvation and of judgment. And so we bow before your word today. Help us to receive it with faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.